1: Hello and welcome back to New Books and Law, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Cora Chan and Fiona DeLondres, the editors of a brand new book, China's National Security, Endangering Hong Kong's Rule of Law, published by Hart earlier this year. I'm very excited to speak to Cora and Fiona today about their very timely book. There can't be many more pressing issues right now than Hong- China's National Security in Hong Kong. Now, living in Hong Kong myself, I can affirm that China's national security has come to impact all aspects of the day-to-day lives of citizens. Perhaps more significantly for listeners outside Hong Kong, the situation with regards to national security in Hong Kong has potentially wide-ranging ramifications for the rest of the world. Now, before we get into our discussion, I just want to tell you a little bit about our authors today. Associate Professor Cora Chan is an expert in constitutional theory, human rights and public law at the University of Hong Kong. She is the winner of a number of prestigious academic awards on the General Council of the International Society of Public Law, the Scientific Advisory Board of the International Journal of Constitutional Law, and on the editorial boards of two academic journals. Professor Fiona de Londres is an expert in constitutionalism, human rights, and transnationalism at the University of Birmingham. Of significance, she has been particularly involved in the ongoing process of abortion law reform in Ireland. Fiona has held adjunct or visiting positions all over the world and is currently an affiliate of the Oxford Human Rights Hub and a senior associate of the Global Justice Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy in the University of Toronto. Cora and Fiona, welcome to the show. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you now,
0: very
1: much. Um, just to get started, can you tell me about how you came to be editors and also authors of China's National Security, Endangering Hong Kong's Rule of Law? Um, perhaps Fiona, you want to
0: dive in? Sure. So um quite a few years ago now, Cora and I met at a conference, I think in Cambridge, and I think we immediately found that we had a number of intellectual interests in in common. And um, I, I then invited Cora to contribute to another book that I was editing on a critical, perspectives on um, judicial review in counterterrorism context. And I think from that, we realized that we would enjoy working together. And through my engagements with CORA, I began to learn more about the national security arrangements in Hong Kong, uh, particularly Article 23 of the basic law, which I think we'll probably come back to later. So we decided that we wanted to do something together and that thinking about um, national security, national security lawmaking, rule of law resilience in the context of this really particular um, constitutional settlement between Hong Kong and mainland China uh, was just a particularly interesting idiosyncratic, internationally relevant area uh, to collaborate on. And so we were uh, delighted to get a grant from the British Academy to support some workshops, which the law faculty in Hong Kong uh, University also supported. And from that, it became clear that there was a need for a book like this, an interest in a book like this, and that we had an incredible group of potential authors. And so the natural thing to do was for us to try to bring this Try to bring this book together to give effect to our mutual interests and also to answer what we thought was a need in the market for something up to date. Of course, many things happened since we submitted the manuscript, yeah. but something uh, up to date that would reflect on um, the the situation in terms of national security and the rule of law in in Hong Kong.
1: And it is a really interesting book. So um, just to put it into context, Cora, I'm I'd like to ask you, what is China's national security, both from the perspective of the rest of the world and how it's
2: interpreted within China? Uh, China, so uh, maybe I'll um, talk about this from the perspective of China first, but in fact I think the perspective from the rest of the world is pretty much the same. Uh, China takes um, an integrative and extremely broad and, uh, uh, approach to understanding national security. They underst- The Chinese government understands national security extremely broadly to cover um, uh, anything that the Chinese le- leadership deems as essential to the interests of the country as well as to the monopoly of power of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and Included under that that heading, um, it, it's often, the Chinese leadership often refers to the trio of interests, uh, which they call sovereignty, security, and development interests. So basically, um, uh, political power, control over territory, as well as economic interests, all fall under the ambit of national security. And if we look at the... Um, Chinese national security law, uh, the the, the national security law in China, they define national security very broadly. As some of the authors of the book has pointed out, it it includes basically, it could include anything and and everything that the Chinese Communist Party deems as um, important to the country. So the Chinese national security law defines national security as a condition in which the regime sovereignty unity, territorial integrity, welfare of the people, sustainable economic and social development and other major interests of the state are relatively not faced with any danger and not threatened internally or externally and the capability to maintain a sustained security status. So basically um, anything could fall under the heading of national security, anything which the Chinese leadership deems as necessary for protecting their own power in China, as well as necessary for protecting the interests of the country as a whole, um, could be deemed as falling under the ambit of national security. And I think that's the way that the rest of the world sees China's national security as well. Um, I I think other states are aware that national security um, in the context of China Is perhaps an euphemism for for the interests of 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 the of the the Chinese leadership in securing their power as well as in securing the interests of um, of 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 the country as a whole. Uh, So I think I think there's no um, disjuncture here. I think China's very broad conception of national security um, is understood. By the rest of the world. The rest of the world understands that China defines national security more broadly than um, traditionally understood.
1: Yeah um, I think that's very interesting and just picking up on what you're saying you know you just said that it's any national security for China is anything which the Chinese leadership deems necessary for its own power and interests and anything you know it's so broad-ranging what could fall under national security and we can see this point playing out in terms of not just in Hong Kong, but there's relevance for the rest of the world. Um, Fiona, maybe you can tell me about, um, you give these great examples of you know this very broad-ranging kind of national security. You write about the expansion of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is an organization devoted almost entirely to security, defined in accordance with the interests of Russia and China in mind. Now, it's the largest regional organization of the world, the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation has prolific influence on other key international bodies, such as the UN Counterterrorism Organisation and ASEAN. You write, China appears to seek not only to exert its influence in the formal institutional settings of the UN, but also to develop forums in which it can dominate its view of security and its demands can become embedded and gradually the norms and practices that China's conceptualization of security demanded demand rather, may spread across states and into other international and transnational spaces. Mm -hmm. Now, to this, Hong Kong's rule of law tradition and especially its protection of human rights within the one country, two systems framework is a sort of beacon which, until very recently at least, had been relatively successful in maintaining its own separate traditions, notwithstanding China's expanding sphere sphere of security. Now, can you talk a little more about this? Why is the Hong Kong situation relevant to the rest of the world and what can we learn from it?
0: Yeah, thanks. I mean, I think, you know, the first thing to say is that um, what China does in terms of trying to promote its conceptualization of security um, and trying to shape international institutions and international norms is not unique to China. This is a classic hegemonic movement uh, that you see lots of states undertaking, albeit in different ways. So you have the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, as you mentioned, which is an enormous, influential, uh, illiberal organization, uh, largely dominated by Russian and Chinese interests. But it's just important to note, for example, that the United States um, established something called the Global Counterterrorism Forum uh, on during the Obama presidency. And it has Pretty much exactly the same objective, which is to develop an approach to security and counterterrorism, to develop model laws and technical assistance, and to have those picked up and integrated in the UN system. Now, something like the Global Counterterrorism Forum is much more successful right now. It's much more recognized, it's much more integrated. That's partly to do with the states that are driving that and their sphere of influence. But with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and similar kind of, um, let's say, manoeuvres. This is an example of a state engaging in sort of classical statehood, but in this sphere of security that is super significant for individual rights and for civil society and for the rule of law, as you say, not just in China and Hong Kong, but in all of the states that are members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation, which is a little bit like a roll call of your autocratic neighbours, you know, that you uh, would have around for an interesting kind of dinner party from time to time. Um, just like the GCTF is like a roll call of US allies, right? So they're all engaged in the same kind of processes of trying to shape international law and international standards. But that doesn't mean that, you know, China's approach to security is not a matter of of concern. Um, Of course, it is. And it's a matter of international concern. And you see a very interesting sort of development where the Chinese government and its surrogates, so its friendly and ally states, are trying to develop ways of presenting quite repressive behavior as being anti-terrorism, or anti-extremism behavior that is actually oriented towards protecting human rights. So the example is the attempt that the uh, Chinese government is making through the Human Rights Council at the UN level in particular uh, to present um, its um, treatment of Uyghur Muslims as anti-extremism and rights enforcing. And this July, 46 states joined a motion proposed by Belarus uh, to, uh, to note and to, um, I guess, endorse uh, this approach by China as a rights enforcing approach. Again, there's nothing unique to China about this. This is what states do. But the point is that a nation, when you have a large and important and very powerful actor like China, their national interests get pursued internationally as well partly to legitimate what they're doing domestically through trying to shape international norms. And so when you look at sort of the construction of the national security law in Hong Kong as a matter of public order or a matter of national security, as opposed to a matter of politics, a matter of dissensus, a matter of contestation, then that is a framing that is not unique to China we see it with other states like Egypt, in particular, at the moment as well. But it's something that both helps to shift international expectations and help, and the state tries to underpin it by reference to the statements and actions of friendly states internationally as well. So this relationship between the domestic and the transnational is is really significant and is really complex. Um, and sometimes a little bit shady and hard to grasp across all states. But that's one of the reasons why I think you see so many parts of the UN human rights machinery, like multiple special rapporteurs coming together to issue very strong statements in respect to the national security law in Hong Kong, because they know this is both about the people of Hong Kong and the rule of law in Hong Kong, it's about respect for an international agreement, the joint declaration, which guarantees autonomy through a one country, two system uh, approach. But it's also about trying to show clearly that the international legal institutions should not absorb this approach to national security. Like it's a resistance on the international sphere as well. And that's part of of this process of making, shaping, changing, contesting international standards that particularly powerful states engage in all the time.
1: Yeah, and I think um, just in terms of this idea of respect for law and respect for international standards, what we sort of see a little bit in Hong Kong of this kind of dichotomy, you're talking about, you know, this um, classical statehood security you know, expanded in sort of like talk of uh, rights um, and rule of law and also, you know, this uh, like dichotomy between public order and politics, Mm -hmm. Hong Kong I think is sort of like a a bit of a microcosm perhaps in that sense. Um, So just, you know, picking up on that, um, you know, in your book you describe China's national security in Hong Kong as a challenge for constitutionalism, autonomy and the rule of law. I mean these are sort of ideas of, which, you know, cross borders. Um, Cora, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about how the Chinese concept of national security may pose a threat to these concepts
2: in Hong Kong. Um, Thank you. I think the key here is that uh, because China holds such broad conceptions of national security uh, um, and it is also very willing to... um, discard constitutionalist and rule of law ideas in order to impose uh, its conceptions of national security, um, on Hong Kong. Um, uh, and I'm going to give some examples of that. Um, that's why we, uh, the title of our chapter was that China's national security in Hong Kong might pose a challenge for constitutionalism, autonomy, and the rule of law, um, in Hong Kong. And these, Ideas of constitutionalism, autonomy, and the rule of law are are core to um, the one country, two systems uh, framework, which governs um, China-Hong Kong relationship and which is underpinned by the joint declaration which Fiona has mentioned. So uh, just to give some examples um, on how China's national security could pose a challenge to constitutionalism and autonomy and the rule of law on constitutionalism. um, I think what we are seeing, so if we look at the example of how the national security law was enacted and imposed on Hong Kong, unilaterally uh, imposed on Hong Kong, enacted by China's um, legislative body uh, without meaningful consultation with the people of Hong Kong, if if we look at the process in which that happened, um, we see um, that the basic law uh, is the, the, the basic law is waning as a legal framework. Uh, in other words, the the idea that the basic law acts as a mini constitution, um, it could protect the rights and freedoms and autonomy of Hong Kong people. Um, that idea is waning. The, 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 the value of the basic law as a constitutional document, um, has been much weakened um, through the way um, the Chinese government has imposed the national security law. I- I'm not saying that this hasn't happened before. This has happened before. Um, the Chinese government has in the past tried to bypass certain guarantees in the basic laws through using its um, general and vague powers under the PRC constitution. Uh, but this time they've used its so the, the National People's Congress authorized the enactment of the National Security Law in a decision which is not underpinned by any particular provision in the Basic Law. In other words, the Basic Law there, there are various places in the Basic Law that allows the NPC to exercise powers in Hong Kong, but the enactment of the National Security Law in such a manner um, it, it is not one of them. It is not, it's not. It's. it's the, the Basic Law doesn't provide any specific basis for the NPC to do so. And the Chinese government has in the past uh, bypassed requirements of the Basic Law uh, by relying on vague powers of supervision in the PRC constitution. But this time, they have used its powers, uh, general powers of supervision under the PRC constitution to enact this wide-ranging national security law that imposes territory right criminal liability that governs a wide range of activities in hong kong and that really that that's a first um so from from the example of the enactment of the national security law we we could see that because china uh the we 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 are able to see um what china is willing and able to do um in in order to impose its conceptions of national security. And as a result, um, the idea that um, the the basic law could act as a meaningful framework of constraint against um, the Chinese government's powers, or indeed the Hong Kong government's powers, um, has been much weakened. And that's why um, this is an example of how China's national security weakens constitutionalism. As for autonomy, um, I mean, if you look at the substantive provisions of the national security law, uh, again, we, we see that the Chinese government views the protection of national security broadly defined um, as a priority. And if the if the um, separation of systems, if if the idea of having different systems in Hong Kong is going to threaten Uh, its sovereignty, security, and development interests, uh, no doubt it's going to enforce uh, its sovereignty, even if it means sacrificing promises of autonomy. And if you look at these substantive provisions of the national security law, uh, examples abound uh, of that. For example, um, that the Chinese government may assume jurisdiction over national security in certain cases, um, clearly that's um, taking away what what has previously been considered within Hong Kong's autonomy, that is um, the power final adjudication, prosecution, um, and law enforcement, and so on. So that's another example of how national security of, of China could harm the autonomy. And and I could give other examples of how its, it's national security could, could harm the rule of law, but the very... Um, obvious example in in the national security law is the ousting of judicial review of the um, National Security Commission in Hong Kong, ousting of um, the jurisdiction of courts over um, uh, ousting of judicial review of decisions made by the National Security Commission. Again, that is another example to show how um, China uh, would not shy away from Um, compromising uh, the rule of law, autonomy and constitutionalism if it believes that such compromise is necessary to protect its national security.
1: And I just want to, I'll just get you, Cora, to expand a little on this because, as you say, this is what the Chinese government has done with the national security law. It is new. Um, There is scope in the basic law for the Chinese government to, you know, introduce laws but um, not in relation to security because in the basic law, we already have you know, Article 23, um, which Fiona also mentioned earlier. Um, and so we see that even before the introduction of the national security law on July 1, then still there was some kind of national security law. It was almost inevitable that it would be introduced into Hong Kong. So I'm just wondering, can you talk a little bit more about this power and the scope of Article 23 in the basic law? Yeah. Also, yeah, going back to two thousand and three, um, and then what's happened since then?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Article Twenty Three controversy um, is, in a way, it's the backstory to the enactment of the National Security Law. Uh, there is, as you say, Article Twenty Three uh, of the Basic Law provides that the Hong Kong government um, shall enact laws to prohibit um, a, a list of national security crimes, subversion, treason, sedition, etc. So certain national security crimes. Um, in other words, according to Article 23, the Hong Kong government has an obligation to enact national security legislation, but also a right to do so. It's something that is within their, their mm-hmm. scope of power to do so. That's why the introduction of national security legislation by China is so controversial it is thought that this is something that belong this is a matter that belongs to the autonomy of the hong kong government so back in 2003 uh the hong kong government attempted to introduce legislation to implement its obligation under article 23 but uh the the attempt was met with widespread opposition half a million people took to the streets also on first of july Uh, and uh, as a result, the, the the bill was shelved, so the attempt was unsuccessful. Uh, China's response to uh, this episode uh, was to uh, uh, restrict re- freedoms and autonomy in Hong Kong, because uh, China uh, was of the view that it, it was it was. Perhaps a little worried about um, the strength of Hong Kong civil society, as seen in in the half million people on the streets, and eventually this was this was able to force the government to yield. Um, and, and as a result of that, the Chinese government issued an interpretation of the Basic Law to uh, ensure to to ensure that um, Beijing has powers over the pace. Of democratic reform in Hong Kong, and this led this led to subsequent um, tensions in Hong Kong. You might recall that in 2014, um, there was an occupy um, movement um, for genuine democracy, and the movement was in part um, triggered by a decision by the NPCSC um, uh, to impose strict conditions on on the form of universal suffrage that could take place in hong kong and and so people were, were 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 discontented with that decision they 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 felt that um promises of universal suffrage in the basic law so there is a clause in, in the basic law saying that the eventual um mode of election in, in hong kong shall be by universal suffrage so people felt that those promises were unfulfilled and as a result of the unfulfillment of those promises um after the 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 occupied movement there was uh uh, we're beginning to see some pro-independence forces in hong kong it's a very small um force but they're they're quite vocal and whenever whenever they make themselves visible they they are on, on the on the news so um and all of that um came to um, it, it all of that accumulated in the 2019 anti-extradition protests, which in a way you could see as a continuation of the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. Um, and in that, uh, in the 2019 protests, um, the pro-independence forces were quite visible. Um, there were also um, individual citizens um, lobbying for foreign states to impose sanctions on Hong Kong. And, and so um, as a result of the 2019 protests, I think the 2019 protests was the point where, in which the Chinese government felt that Hong Kong would really go out of control and would pose a threat to China's national security uh, if no further steps were taken to restrict um, to, to, to 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 restrict freedoms here and, and that's why the national security law was introduced
1: yeah um so I think we can draw some of these points together. Um this idea of you know there's being this conflict between national security and also the rule of law. Um Now, turning to some of the other authors in the book, I know that you can't speak for or on behalf of the other authors, but I'd like to turn our discussions to some of their arguments for your comment. So just picking up on this, um, you just mentioned in the 2019 anti-extradition protests, there was, you know, more visibility of pro-independence protesters and also there was lobbying for overseas support, which, you know, I guess it, it could be perceived to the Chinese government was a threat to their security. Now, On this this idea of a threat to national security, Huiling Fu writes about China's imperatives for national security. Now, he writes that firstly an issue is the traditional concern of territorial integrity and secondly that Hong Kong could be used as a base to endanger China's security, broadly defined as using Hong Kong to carry out infiltration and sabotage activities against the mainland. Now, how how does Hong Kong challenge China's political security and its political system? That's as if it does at all. Maybe, Clary, you can. Sorry, just building on your previous point, if you can, um, explain that a bit.
2: Yeah. Well. Um, so, in terms of the two strands of national security threats identified by Fu, uh, on the first strand, on the, on the strand of separatism, uh, Hong Kong poses. So, in reality, I think Hong Kong um, poses a threat to separatism but it's it's a threat that is not very real in the sense that i think the support for the public support for secession in hong kong is extremely small although uh, the 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 support for for the pro independence camp uh, is gaining support uh, especially if you compare um, the current situation with the situation just like two years ago, two years ago, if you so before the 2019 um, protests, if you if you ask a random person on the street, I I don't a random young person, I don't I don't think he or she would identify with the idea of self determination or Hong Kong becoming an independent state. But um, in if you if if you watch the news right now, if you if you speak to young people, if you look at the polls. The idea of self-determination and Hong Kong building a state, especially if you listen to the slogans that young people are chanting these days during during poses, the idea of Hong Kong building a state uh, is gaining increasing popularity. So if if and and the way I see it is that if the Chinese government continues to suppress um, Demands for genuine democracy. Uh, the pro-independence camp is going to gain traction in Hong Kong, and it's not unimaginable that that one day um, uh, Hong Kong might pose a threat to, um, to to China's territorial integrity. Although, given the the very the, the huge power imbalance between China and Hong Kong, um, it, it's just not. I can't envisage Hong Kong being able to successfully secede from China. Um, China just needs to send troops to Hong Kong, and that would be the end of the matter. We, we don't have to talk about secession anymore uh, in in future. So I don't see that threat as materializing, but the support for pro-independence forces is definitely um, increasing. Uh, and for subversion, I think um, for for years, people in Hong Kong have been chanting slogans of, ending of one party rule. And I think to China, the the threat here is that people in Hong Kong or uh, movements pro-independence or or, or movements calling for the end of one party dictatorship in Hong Kong um, might be used by foreign forces um, to delegitimize the Chinese government. Um, So I think that the the Chinese government is aware that with the meager force of Hong Kong people, they are not going to pose a threat to the uh, political system of Hong Kong, but um, they are afraid that there would be foreign forces, and, and this is this is the usual rhetoric of, of 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 states whenever there 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 is chaos internally. They they they're going to blame it on blame it on foreign forces and say that there might be foreign forces backing these movements. We see that in Thailand, we see that in 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 in, in Belarus. Um, so I think to China it's um uh hong kong it poses poses a threat and i think we we've got to recognize where china is coming from
1: um and i think you know that's that's really interesting um there is you know it's it's sort of very interesting to pick up on while the sort of the the number of people in hong kong compared to china and you know the idea of sending in troops it, it is small um in terms of sort of meager threat at the same time you know um there has been this mass civil society resistance, which, you know, quite famously. Um, Fiona, I want to talk, wonder if you can talk a little bit more about these, um, the protests movement um, and just the protests, civil society in general in Hong Kong. Um, Michael Davis writes about this. He says, obsessed with control, the Beijing government views any lack of control over political forces as a threat to national security. It worries that popular civil society actors goaded by foreign interference aim to undermine security or usurp sovereignty. On the Hong Kong side, in the absence of a strong local government voice willing to defend autonomy, Hong Kong civil society plays the dominant role as chief guardian of Hong Kong's autonomy and rule of law. He writes that a vibrant civil society in Hong Kong's and China's, sorry, is Hong Kong's and China's greatest asset. And that in a society where civil society plays such a vital role, the local government ignores popular concerns at its peril. Now, can you explain, please, how a vibrant civil society might be perceived as a security threat to the central government, and especially since 1997 at the handover from the British colonial rule, how this has played out, and if you've got any criticisms of this argument also?
0: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think civil society is really critical to this, and I would agree entirely um, with what Cora was saying about how uh, or implying at least about how, in some ways, the strength of the reaction uh, to dissensus and dissent and protest um, uh, in in Hong Kong is a signal of the strength of civil society. So you know, a, a strong repressive legal reaction uh, is the backlash to effective civil society. Organising And that, that is indicative of a strong uh, and effective civil society movement in the first place. Now, look, civil society is always considered to be a threat by autocratic government regimes. Um, we see it all over the world. And partly the reason is that regimes that are control oriented and where, Constituent power does not lie with the people. And for them, like ideology, political form and commitment to a particular form of government and statehood is, as we've already said, integral to security because uh, it. Underpins the claims of of sovereignty. It enables uh, the political uh, machinations and activities of the state, so that when that is questioned, it does it can be perceived as endangering or weakening the nation state and thus national security. And so that's the construction uh, of civil society that we see in uh, regimes and states that have a sort of autocratic or increasingly also populist regimes uh, that take this sort of view of civil society. and Because civil society disrupts state control, civil society means that the state cannot control the narrative, it cannot control the flow of information, Uh, it cannot control organisation, it cannot control public education, public awareness and legal consciousness. These things are popularized democratized and pluralized by civil society and aut- autocracy you know cannot bear cannot withstand effective pluralism uh you know that's they're completely at odds with with one another and so this is why we see civil society under pressure uh not just in in hong kong and in china but all over the world i mean they The phrase that is used at UN level is the shrinking of civil society space. Civil society space is shrinking all over the world. Uh, The typical modes of doing it are to not allow overseas funding of NGOs and organisations to characterise overseas solidarity funding and organisations as so-called foreign interference uh, that is perceived or presented as existing in order to disrupt the state in sort of unproductive or undesirable ways. The use of security and anti-terrorism laws to try to outlaw protest, to try to control speech. There is an increasing tendency across states to do high levels of online surveillance And to create crimes like spreading rumors or spreading false information through social media so that people are criminalized for what they might say on Facebook or on Twitter. We see that in a number of states. These are all really typical modes and means of trying to disrupt civil society and framing that through anti-terrorism or through security gives states a bit of a pass Right, because if a state calls something a security concern, then other states and other actors tend to be a bit more reluctant to intervene. Now, of course, they will eventually intervene. They will maybe make um, statements internationally condemning certain actions of state as states have done in respect of the national security law. They may impose sanctions. They may take other actions, but this like assault on civil society is and framing it as a security matter is unfortunately a kind of a global phenomenon at the moment that the international human rights institutions are really struggling to, to, uh, to arrest and to prevent, because of course it's so bound up with security narratives, which are incredibly strong. Now, if we think about what we've seen since 1997, and I won't repeat the examples that Cora has already given, then I think what we see is backlash against civil society precisely because of the strength and the power of civil society um, activity. But it's it's kind of pointless. It's, it's a futile exercise because civil society... Um, Vibrancy and activity is good for the rule of law. It's good for statehood, like in the ordinary sense of the word. It engages people in the state and in politics uh, so that if you try to repress it, unless you use incredibly strong means, and has already mentioned some that one could imagine, then all you do is inflame it further because you completely manifest to people that the fears they had, the anxieties they had, that drew them to the civil society action in the first place were not ill-founded, you know, because the state's reaction is a manifestation of precisely those anxieties that they had. So if a state like China takes actions that fundamentally undermine autonomy, that begin to say, that autonomy or that the joint declaration has been fulfilled and is no longer relevant or whatever, then what they do is they affirm to people that in fact they need to protest. They need to stand up. They need to engage in civil society. They need to create transparency, challenge the state, bring international attention to things because the state is doing precisely the thing that they were afraid the state would do in the first place. Uh, So attempts to repress civil society ultimately are damaging they're frightening uh, in some places and they do sometimes you know lead to some organizations leaving we've just seen amnesty international for example saying that it's leaving india because it can no longer operate there under modi's regime but ultimately it do- it doesn't quench the commitment to Pluralism and dissensus and disagreement and contestation and the claim that the claim that constituent power should lie with the people, which is ultimately the claim to universal suffrage, uh, that underpins the civil society activity uh, in the first place.
1: And I think um, taking that point, I think there's concern in Hong Kong that it's not just civil society that may be coming under attack or shrinking. Um, but some of the other institutions. um, Mm. For example, maybe, Fiona, you can uh, talk more about this, but, um, you know, by this unprecedented legislation um, and even, you know, concerns prior to that about national security law, um, Pui Yin Lo suggested that the judiciary in Hong Kong is also coming under increasing pressure and that ever since the inception of the Hong Kong national security law, there have been rigorous discussions on whether foreign judges in Hong Kong should resign. In your view, has the rule of law in Hong Kong degenerated to such a stage that foreign judges that come from liberal democratic institutions, sorry, jurisdictions, should resign? Is the rule of ho- law in Hong Kong dead, um, as some Hong Kong commentators have put it? And if foreign judges do resign, and Justice Spiegelman, formerly the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of New South Wales, has already done so, what would be the un- impact on the judiciary?
0: Yeah like to the question is the rule of law in hong kong dead my answer is no but i would say it's it's under a lot of pressure um and that one of its life support machines is the judiciary is an independent judiciary um and i think that the situation that foreign judges who are appointed uh, to the bench in hong kong find themselves in now is really quite precarious. It's quite difficult um, because there will be, I don't, I'm not going to speak for anyone, but one can imagine, there will be a concern about whether by continuing to engage in the judicial institutions in Hong Kong, they are legitimating a system where the rule of law uh, is under such critical pressure that it's irredeemable. Or whether they are, in fact, supporting and bolstering the uh, local um, and very you know, admirable and important attempts by the bar, by litigants, by the court to ensure a continued fidelity to the rule of law. And ultimately, you know, that's a very delicate balancing act. So when do you tip from helping to maintain legitimacy? To being a tool of legitimation, which of course are very very different things. When when where is the tipping point on that is a very I think delicate question, and I think it's it's too soon to say that we know the answer to that question yet. When it comes to these um, uh, appointees from well, formally set in judiciaries in other common law states, and I mean I think if we think about you know what, for me at least, are the purposes of these appointments, um, you know, those purposes are still really vital. So if we think they are probably appointed to help to maintain the vitality of Hong Kong's common-law tradition by keeping it um, as part of this sort of transnational uh, so-called common-law family, which in its own way is problematic, but let's say that we thought it it was valuable to help to institutionalise and maintain the independence of the judiciary uh, by insisting on particular approaches to judicial independence in order to uh, accept appointments and maintain appointments, which I think we can all agree is vital. Um, That that their appointment signals continued autonomy from Beijing, um, that their appointment can help to bring experience, their experience to the bench in Hong Kong, and that their continued appointment and involvement can help to support Maybe even protect uh, and give, um, let's say yes, yeah, support to the judiciary in Hong Kong. I think all of those things remain um, objectives that their continued engagement with the Hong Kong judicial system can uh, give effect to, and they're and they're important. Now, I think a couple of things may tip the balance for a number of the appointees. So Cora will correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is that the chief executive would appoint judges uh, on cases that arise into the national security law uh, rather than the chief justice, which would be the normal sort of way of appointing judges to a list or or to a case. Now, there are a couple of ways that that can go. A chief executive could make appointments on the advice of the chief justice or could make appointments that are pretty similar to the kinds of appointment patterns that would ordinarily be seen in other Areas And that would include appointing foreign judges or the chief justice could take a different approach. I think that will tell a lot uh, to to the foreign judges about how they think uh, the judicial institutions in Hong Kong are either being enabled or disabled from ensuring that the national security law is interpreted in line with the basic law, which, of course, includes commitment to the international covenant. On civil and political rights as part of the basic law. So, sorry, it's a very long answer to your question, and it can be summarised in, it's probably a bit too soon to tell. But I think those kinds of decisions, are the courts in Hong Kong, you know, able to exercise interpretive independence, uh, in terms of the national security law, is the independence of the judiciary maintained and is the appointment or, or the listing process under the national security law informed by rule of law principles or not? Those are likely to be the kinds of things that would influence the decision. And I suspect that most of the foreign judges will be reluctant to simply walk away. I think they will want to maintain their institutional commitment to the common law and autonomy uh, commitments of Hong Kong that would have influenced their decision to accept appointments in the first place. I mean, Cora may have a something, I may have got something wrong there about the national security law, and she'll correct me if I
2: have. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. So uh, in terms of the appointment of judges for national security cases, you're, you're right, the chief executive will appoint um well, well she should appoint a pool of judges responsible for dealing with national security cases. And that is peculiar because, as you mentioned, um, the normal practice is for the judiciary to, to deal with the issue of um, assigning judges to, to, to cases. Uh, but I, I, I agree um, with you that it's too early to um, tell whether the rule of law is dead, and it's too early to say that foreign judges should resign for the reasons, for all the reasons that you mentioned.
1: Um, And I think um, just picking up on what Fiona said, so she just said that um, the rule of law is under pressure even though we don't really know yet. But, um, Cora, so I think Simon Young gives us a really interesting analysis of the way, one way at least, that the judiciary may seek to marry um, rule of law and some common law principles in in line with the national security law. Um, So he writes in particular about the offence of secession, which is in the new national security law. He argues that any national security offences should be interpreted and implied in accordance with the Hong Kong legal system's principles of criminal liability and human rights, as developed by the Hong Kong courts. This is of concern now as the national security cases begin to come before the courts. Now, some of his suggestions include that judges should take a purposive approach so as not to overshoot the purpose of the law, that the courts must continue to apply the notion of legality, whereby human rights and fundamental legal principles cannot be overridden except by explicit or necessary implication. He says courts must continue to apply rules such as the common law presumption of mens rea and also the presumption of innocence. He also writes, though, that it is helpful to look at the mainland legal developments, Firstly, in application of the principle of minimal implementation, so that only that which is minimally required by security legislation is applied, and second, to aim for some harmonization between national security laws at the national and regional levels. Now, considering that there is an offensive secession in the new national security legislation, can we assume that these principles of interpretation continue to apply, and are there any implications that flow from this?
2: Thank you. Uh- You're you're right, and I think this flows very well from the previous question um, concerning the state of the rule of law in Hong Kong. Partly uh, why I think it's too early to say that the rule of law uh, is dead in Hong Kong is because the courts in Hong Kong will have to um, adjudicate the law. Um, And they have, as common law courts, they have a shiny toolkit Um, which they can use in in interpreting the provisions of the national security law, uh, including um, the the principles that Simon Young has identified in his chapter. So reading rights, um, defining the scope of constitutional rights generously um, and uh, construing legislative provisions insofar as it is possible to do so compatibly with constitutional rights, and this may uh, require courts to read up, or read down, or read in provisions, uh, and and in fact, um, so your your question was, um, do you think uh, uh, now that we have a, have an offence on secession, these um, principles will be applied, and what are the yeah. implications? Uh, that well, in fact, if we look at the um, the few cases that have been handed down um, on the national security law so far, uh, the courts have confirmed that they will be construing the national security law in accordance with the common law approach. So in the Tong Kit case, for example, they've rejected the government council's argument that um, the, um, that perhaps this is a special regime, that that the courts ought to use a different type of method in in construing. So so that argument was was rejected and the courts have affirmed that they will be construing the national security law using common law principles uh, and they've also confirmed the principle of legality that is they will construe these provisions uh, insofar as possible compatibly with the provisions of the basic law including of course the uh, provisions on human rights in the basic law. So uh, There's no doubt that this would be the general approach that the courts would take. But, of course, we're not sure how uh, bold and how rigorous the courts will be in applying this approach. Um, For example, um, you referred to the offence of secession. Uh, The offence of secession made it clear that a person who organises plans, commits or participates in uh, any separatist acts, whether or not by force or threat of force um, with the view to committing secession w- would be guilty of an offence. So it made it very clear that, um, that secession could be committed even without force or threat of force. And I think that the, 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 um, the observation that I would make here is that first of all, um, there are limits to principles of statutory interpretation. If the if the wording is extremely clear in in the statute, or if the legislative intent, as revealed in in the drafting documents, is extremely clear, then um, the courts can't go against legislative intent um, by using techniques of statutory interpretation. Um, the, uh, the the other observation is that so when I when I first um, looked at this provision, I thought that maybe it would be possible to read it down by um, uh, sorry read it read read it in sorry I I thought that maybe it would be possible to interpret this provision by reading in some conditions. Um, uh, for for the offence, um, for example, the the provision um, doesn't say what the effect of the separatist acts ought to be, and and, and I thought maybe it would be possible to read in um, uh, a provision, re- read in a condition saying that these separatist acts must actually have um, some effect on on separatism. There there has to be and it has to pose an imminent threat to national security for example before it would be deemed a secessionist act but and this is my second observation and and the second limit to how courts could use principles of statutory interpretation the courts um, need to reconcile whatever they hand down with um the the general corpus of common law principles um so uh when i did a bit more research i realized that um for, for for offenses like these and for offenses of incitement for example the courts usually wouldn't require um, that the act actually lead to the um uh the the the, 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 the offense that it, it would yield particular effect that is usually not a requirement before uh, the act of incitement would be founded so um it, it would in fact, be a bit difficult for the court to say that as an act, um, say a peaceful act of secession or a peaceful advocacy of secession would only constitute an act of secession under the new law uh, if it uh, poses imminent threat to national security, if it would credibly lead to secession, for example. So there are limits to what courts could do. Um, through uh, principles of statutory interpretation. But, but even even so, I think there is still a lot of room for the courts to construe um, the provisions of the national security law compatibly with rights so that its most draconian um, aspects could be ameliorated. As for implications, so that is my final point, um, your question about what would be the implications for courts applying these principles, I think inevitably um, we would have, so if courts uh, rigorously apply principles of interpretation to read down these provisions, there would be a risk of the Chinese government issuing um an interpretation of the national security mm-hmm. law or of the basic law to overturn the court's ruling. Or, or even worse, the Chinese government may issue an interpretation that um, takes away certain powers of the court. Um, so I think this risk is something that the courts uh, would inevitably have to take into account that they would be aware of this risk. Um, so so it, it is a very difficult question. It, it's, it's a tough question that courts and authoritarian jurisdictions um, have to navigate um, uh, all the time.
1: And I think uh, it relates to this idea of building the rule of law um, so resilience through institutions. Um, Cora and Fiona, you wrote it, This is you know, your chapter that you wrote together. Um, Fiona, perhaps you can talk about this. You write that China's approach to national security is one in which many of the fundamental elements of politicisation, resistance, dissent and protests that attempt to discipline state security power in other contexts are themselves susceptible to being seen as security risks that require suppression. In other words, we know that institutions have the capacity to compound oppressive and repressive regimes. They do not in and of themselves guarantee or even provide forms of transparency, accountability, reflection and participation that are the hallmark of the kinds of institutions that might provide resilience to the rule of law in Hong Kong or indeed elsewhere. Can you explain and perhaps give examples of the role of institutions in relation to China's security, especially in the Hong Kong context?
0: Yeah, so I mean I think Um, One of the the key things for us was to try to make the point that institutions matter, but the mere existence of institutions is not sufficient to discipline security narratives and activities uh, in a rule of law oriented way. Uh, So we in our chapter propose this is before the national security law, of course, but we propose the idea that an institutional infrastructure uh, could be developed around um, a national security law, like an Article 23 law that might um, ensure principles of accountability, transparency and participation uh, in questions of security in order to try to ensure that it is legitimate and that it is what we call sustainable. So we see sustainable security as uh, as security that is transparent, accountable, limited, participatory, uh, and thus um, legitimate as opposed to legitimated uh, or legitimating. Now, in order for institutions to do that work effectively, they have to operate within a system that has a constitutionalist mindset or a rule of law mindset around uh, institutional independence, the mandate of institutions and institutions' capacity to publish their findings and, of course, the willingness by government to change tack uh, if it becomes clear through this kind of institutional infrastructure that a security law is not sustainable or is not working or is having unintended uh, and unjustifiable uh, implications for, for rights or for the rule of law, or in this case, for autonomy. And it has to be said that even in states that are sometimes considered to be models of review and accountability in the security space, like the United Kingdom, This doesn't work especially well because governments tend to get quite embedded in a certain approach to security and they build this massive system around their view of security. So it's quite hard to to pull back from it. But what's really interesting to me having, so sorry, so the kinds of institutions that you would need at a minimum to be robust and effective and independent and empowered uh, would be you know, an effective and independent legislature. Uh, It would be an effective and independent judiciary. It would ideally be a human rights infrastructure like a national human rights institution or uh, a human rights commission. Uh, It would, of course, be uh, the institution of free and fair elections. Uh, And it would be the institution of some kind of evaluative review mechanism, like an independent reviewer of how a particular security regime operates and what its effects are. And that person should have full security clearance and uh, be empowered to see all information from all relevant actors. Um, Now, what's really interesting to me, in particular, having uh, having written this chapter, is the establishment of a security institutional infrastructure within the national security law that, of course, is not rights-oriented, but is, you know, an institution, an institution infrastructure around, for example, the National Security Commission that is designed to create processes that are, in fact, not transparent or not participatory or not rule-of-law oriented but rather are enabled to act outside of many of the ordinary institutions of the rule of law, as Cora mentioned earlier, for example, being immunised from judicial review for decisions that might be made. So I think that just really um, underlines the sort of overall point that we made in that chapter where we laid out this kind of idea of a set of institutions but ultimately said whether or not any set of institutions is effective to make security sustainable and legitimate will depend on a commitment to legitimacy and constitutionalism and the rule of law uh, in the broader political and legal system within which these institutions are operating. And I think everything that we have seen Uh, since we wrote the book and I'll speak for myself everything I have seen since I wrote this uh, chapter with Cora would suggest that that mindset or that commitment is not present and in the absence of that institutional infrastructures will not be able to underpin and protect and help to build the rule of law. In fact, they may simply uh, be mechanisms of further eroding the rule of law by giving the appearance of process and structure, uh, but in fact not being committed to or able to give effect to even if they have such a commitment uh, to this notion that the law should limit rather than empower the state. So I
1: think summing up, we can say perhaps that there are some institutions perhaps and there are other mechanisms of resilience, um, for example, civil society, the judiciary, Yeah. but, you know, they they will come into conflict and there is this tension Um in terms of, you know, there being this lack of transparency, um, which could erode, you know, the rule of law um, and human rights and some of, you know, the traditions that Hong Kong has become famous for. Um, So just before you go, I've taken up a lot of your time, um, but I'm just hoping you can both tell me a little bit about what you're working on next. Perhaps, Cora, you can please fill us
2: in. (laughs) <laughs> well, I um, I think I might take a little break from national security yeah. um, for now, and um, I'm writing a book on um, different methods. So, what what methods? Um, courts should use in expressing judicial deference it's relevant to national security as well because national security uh, is an area in which courts often exercise judicial deference so I think that's going to occupy that's the main thing that's going to occupy me for the next um, year or so Um, but of course there are other things on the side and I hope to be speaking to you again at some point um, if I if I have new books. <laughs>
1: I would love to, that would be great. <laughs> yeah.
0: And Fiona, what are you working on now? Well, I am, and I use this term very loosely, finishing uh, a book on <laughs> transnational <laughs> counterterrorism. Um So oh, wow. it's a book that starts with the United Nations and builds through it to kind of informal and soft international institutions and tries to trace this enormous institutional and normative growth in counterterrorism leaking into countering extremism at the international level, and to illustrate and draw attention to the distorting effects of that discourse and institutional growth. So, distorting effects at the UN level, where counter- everything is counterterrorism now because that's the only way anything gets done, um, but also distortions regionally and nationally to politicization, dissent, uh, dissensus, the judicial role, and so on. So it's uh, it's an interesting project because it's enormous in its scale. Um, but, of course, I, I have to discipline it. So it turns out to be a reasonably short book, only about 80,000, 85,000 words, but um, trying to fit quite a lot of really quite grim analysis into it so it's not very uplifting but it is nearly finished which is good
1: well I'll I'll be honest um I hope that you both finish really quickly because I'd love to read both your books and have you back I've I've read a lot of uh, the rest of the work that you've both done but especially this book I I really enjoyed it I found it um again not entirely uplifting at all the times but um yeah really really essential um, so, Cora and Fiona, thank you so much for your time. We've covered a lot of ground today, um, but I would suggest to listeners that you do get your hands on a copy of China's National Security Endangering Hong Kong's Rule of Law. It's published by Heart Publishing in 2020. Now, there is just so much more in there that it's relevant and interesting from a diverse array of authors that we just did not get time to cover today. It really is a fabulous book and it's essential reading for our times. Cora and Fiona, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Once once again I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Cora Chan and Fiona Londres, the editors of China's National Security Endangering Hong Kong's Rule of Law. You've been listening to The New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network.